Well, the uh, talk this morning in the series on God's promises, God's life-giving promises, is why Jesus Christ? It's a fairly obvious question. Uh, the answer to that question to us is quite obvious. But um, nonetheless, we need to be clear that there's no none of God's promises that uh, hold good or are capable of implementation apart from Jesus Christ. That's what we're about. I thought it would be helpful to begin by referring to somebody who is very confident of God's promises, and that was Paul. He received a gift. It's a lovely story. The, in fact, the whole letter of Philippians is just a delightful book, and at the back end of it, he's acknowledging a gift that they've sent to him. So he thanks them for their gift. And then he says, not that I, I want to be... Uh, come to you as a person in great need, he says. Uh, I, my, my needs are very well met. I have learned in everything to be content. Very interesting uh, statement that he learned in everything. Um, and uh, then later on, he's talking to them. He, they've given him a gift, and that sounds as though they have given sac- sacrificially. That is, they've gone without something themselves. These days, not many of us need to go without something in order to give to somebody else, but in their case, they needed to go without something so Paul would have plenty. And, and he makes this beautiful comment, God will supply all your needs. Uh, now, that's not a promise from God, that's a promise from Paul. But it comes all the more interestingly because he's a person who himself is living in God's promises Uh, to the point that he's taught himself, because the promises are valid and because they stand, he's taught himself not to be anxious in any circumstances. It's really quite astonishing, isn't it? And on that ground, he can then relate to his friends and say, God will meet all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus is a kind of code word through Philippians, right from the first verse and about three times in this last chapter, uh, saying, identifying as we're in Christ Jesus. Things are different when you're in Christ Jesus. Here's part of the package. You've got no needs that are outstanding. God is going to meet all your needs according to his riches in glory. He's not short. He's got stacks. Uh, it's very wonderful, isn't it? So there's just a little practical example of somebody who in Christ Jesus, because we're talking about Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ today, uh, who says everything is covered. Uh, now, how we work that out, of course, it does involve learning to be content. But uh, let's see how we go with this study about Jesus. In many promises scattered throughout the Bible, God says he will be with us, for example, numbers of times, different, very different occasions. Act for us, save us, give us an inheritance and peace peace of God which passes all understanding again in Philippians shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus but now all these promises are gathered up into one he will send us a king to implement them and that's what we're about today and in particular we're looking at a promise that's made uh, to David Uh, we need to somebody uh, pointed out it was Hector Morrison that some of you will remember an Old Testament lecturer from Scotland And he draws attention to the fact that in the Hebrew Bible, uh, you don't go from Ruth to Samuel, you go from Judges to Samuel. 
and this contrast between the chaos at the end of the book of Judges and the incredible movements of God to bring order uh, through first of all Saul as king and then David as king is absolutely astonishing and within a, just a matter of decades there's a, a, a probably as great a revival as you'd ever see in a historical situation. It just went from the very pitch to the very height so much so that, that David is still celebrated as uh, Israel's great king. Uh, so that's the kind of period we're talking about. And David is at this point when this uh, reading comes to Samuel 7, he's already established as king. He's, he's uh, largely defeated the, and he's to have wars to fight for the rest of his life. But nonetheless, the uh, enemies were largely contained and the nation had peace and prosperity. And then God comes to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12. Let's just read a little bit of that. Uh, to get ourselves oriented to what a great thing God is doing here in human history. Uh, because, uh, in fact, it is a moment in history, as David notes when he says this, to Samuel 7 and verses 12 to 14, 12 to 19. Uh, he says, um, uh, when your days are fulfilled, in other words, I'm not talking about your lifetime, David, I'm talking about when you've gone, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come after you from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In other words, God is saying the prosperity that you now enjoy as a nation is just a little picture Just a little picture. It's massive from your point of view, but it's just a little picture of what I'm going to do in human history. Uh, I will be to him a father, he will be to him a son. Even if he sins, I'll discipline him. In other words, David knew all about failing and being disciplined in two notable cases um, and others I'm sure as well. I will discipline him, but I will not take my steadfast love from him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me that's, can't get more absolute than that can you made sure forever before me and your throne shall be established forever and in accordance with these words um, Nathan spoke to David so here's David he sits down before the Lord and he says who am I Lord God and what is my house that you have brought me thus far. I mean, if that was all there was, that would be absolutely unspeakable in terms of how great it is. And yet this was a small thing. Past is just nothing. O Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this, note this phrase, is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. In other words, This is the rule for history. He recognises that what God is going to do is effective for all nations and for all time and all nations need to take notice of what God is doing in regard to his dynasty. Uh, That's quite something to be revealed, isn't it? Um, Later on we'll have a look at Psalm 110 and you'll notice in the New Testament that it's called David said and even Jesus says about Psalm 110 that David said 
so Psalm 110, as we'll see in a moment, uh, is written by David or is um, uh, yeah, composed by David and we, uh, according to Jesus. And um, so he has a, a wonderful picture of the enormity of what God is doing here. So that's the, the prophecy. Now, David is humbled deeply and it should humble us all. It's one thing to say, oh, yes, Jesus Christ. Oh, no, Jesus Christ. This is amazing that in the midst of our chaos where we won't come under God's covenant, which was exactly what was happening during the days of the judges, God gives them a king. And not only so, that's just a small thing. God can just do that, give you a king like, no, that's nothing. But God can establish a reign that's forever whereby the chaos of human history can be resolved. That's what's being said. Uh, We ought to be humbled deeply. We have no reason at all why God should make any promises to us, let alone one that guarantees us a king who will put all his promises into a full effect. So God's promises are truly amazing. They are all made to people God can't trust, not even David. Not even Peter. Uh, you'll deny me three times. Um, they are made to people he can't trust, but they are his powerful <coughs> word. So they're not just things to which we have access. They are an authority that God has established that shows that Satan has, does not have the preeminence nor the, nor the um, initiative. Satan never in human history, has had the initiative. God's always been setting the agenda for how things shall be arranged, as we saw in the first study. Um, They are his powerful word drawing us back to know and rely on him to discover that he is worthy of our love. You know, if God can persuade me that he is good, in one sense I can imagine God saying, mission accomplished. It's something amazing for a human being to say God is good. That's what Paul has in mind when he says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. He's saying, my God, the God in whom I've trusted, is good and he'll look after you. Uh, further prophecies concerning God's king will fill out the picture. So we look at these now. First of all, Psalm 110, for example, as we said, uh, was also <coughs> composed by uh, words of, of David himself. Uh, Psalm 110. Uh, just look, not all of it, but we'll just read a little bit of it. The Lord says to my Lord, so here is David speaking, and he's referring to Yahweh, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, He's referring to Yahweh, the Israel's God, says to my Lord, well, who's my Lord? Sit at my right hand until I make an enemies, uh, your enemies your footstool. In other words, David has been thinking about this promise that's been made to him back in 2 Samuel. And his thinking has gone on, or should I say God's revelation to him about how great it is, um, is growing. And he can understand that this one who is to come is not less than him because he's his son, but greater than him and in fact his Lord. Now you might remember that Jesus refers to this and says, why does David call this Messiah his Lord? 
uh, you remember he argues that, how come he calls him his Lord? So it's quite a big issue. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, that is, of this um, master of David. Rule in the midst of your enemies and your people. Not only will he rule, but his people will follow. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. It's beautiful, isn't it? God sends up his Christ and his people gather. That's what the church is. Christ stands up. The people gather. That's the church. Nothing else. Uh, it's what it is. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now David knows his Genesis and he knows the story of Melchizedek and he is a priest who's not of the Aaronic priesthood. And he says, this son of mine, he's not just going to be from the tribe of Judah, he's going to be a son of, uh, he's going to be like Melchizedek and he'll be a priest. He doesn't have to be from Aaron to be a priest. It's a different order, but he's going to be a priest. Quite interesting, isn't it? Uh, he'll be a priest. We need more than a leader to solve problems. Have we realised that in Australia? We need more than a leader to solve problems. We need someone who'll take away our sins and stop us justifying ourselves all the time by taking away our guilt. Isn't that true? And if you just read the lovely, lovely chapters, for example, in Hebrews 7, um, and I'll just uh, refer to them quickly. I think I can get them quickly so that we don't lose time here. But Hebrews chapter 7 and verses nine, verse 19. Uh, what was this priest going to do that would change the equation? The law made... Seven, Hebrews 7 and verse 19. Yes, the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. It's amazing, isn't it? This is what the humanity needs to do. Adam was in the garden and God came to him in the cool of the day and said, where are you, Adam? God wanted to be with Adam. And a person, a human being, rightly understanding themselves, will know that they want to be in God's presence. That's through which we draw near to God. And then go over to um, verse 25. Um, Christ, this Christ holds his priesthood permanently. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, not just put programs in place. Like Mahatma Gandhi said, one of my favourite quotes, he got sick and tired of people looking for things, for things to become so good that people didn't need to be good. It's interesting, isn't it? We're always looking for programs to fix things. We need people to be good people to fix things. And you don't have good people unless they've got a good God and people who want to be in God. You see, David sees, I think it's quite a remarkable thing that God opens up to David that they don't just need a strong man who can wield a sword and conquer the enemies, but they need a priest who can bring them to God so that they can be at peace before him. So it's quite something, isn't it, that he realises. And uh, not only so, but and as the, it goes on, we have Psalm 2, which you know very well and is uh, quoted in the New Testament, I think up to 20 times, because Jesus so clearly fulfills it. Why do the nations rage? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? And why do the peoples plot in vain? Well, James has got an answer to that. Once come, once, where, where comes 
fightings and wars amongst you? Is it not from your passions? A soul that's not satisfied for God is subject to his passions and passions make wars. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and so forth. It all goes on. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. He will speak to them in his wrath. He says, as for me, verse 6, I've set my king on my holy hill in Zion. What's the problem? Uh, We often ask the question, what's the problem? I'm not sure Paul would have asked that question. Jesus is the answer. That was his preoccupation, not what's the problem, but Jesus is the answer. That was what he was about, wasn't it? Not fixing the problems of the world, but bringing people to God, because that's what his king was about. You are my son, today I've begotten me. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is instruction for mankind. Everybody needs to take notice of the fact that God has sent a king to implement what he's promised he'll do. But apart from the king coming, the promises lack an executive to effect them. So kings be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and so forth. So as Israel's history deteriorates, God's promises about his king get richer and fuller. Somebody observed one time that if you do a graph of um, Israel's history, starting with the great days, if you like, of of David and the great kingship, and then you do a, a, a graph of their spiritual performance, it tends to go down and down and down like this. And then you do a graph of when the prophets are sent, and it goes like this. Where do the most of the prophets come? Um, like Jeremiah, Habakkuk, um, Ezekiel. Um, they come in the days when the, the nation is collapsing. You know, the worse of the people, the greater the word. That's good, isn't it? We don't need, when did the great revival of the 18th century come? When England was in a mess. It didn't gradually improve. Uh, and when's revival going to come that we're praying for? Well, it might come we're under a rock, as Havel, Havel says. When people are under a rock, then they begin to think. Do you see that God's word is not related to circumstances, it's related to his promise. He's established his king over Zion. And, and that's it. And that everything is serving that particular end. So as Israel history deteriorates, God promises about his king that get richer and fuller. So come, well, come to Isaiah, 8th century prophet, <coughs> as distinct from David back a few hundred years before that. God's ruler will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. Throughout him, the whole earth will be given peace and no God. I mean, these verses could well be, um, you know, written up over the kitchen sink or um, behind the workbench or wherever you spend your time. Isaiah 11. Um, <clears throat> the Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus. Um, you remember Jesus uh, uh, the spirit of wisdom, so he doesn't quote this, he quotes Psalm 6, uh, Isaiah 62, I beg your pardon, but this is like it. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might. I just love 
I love the fact of Jesus um, uh, was not fooled or swayed by what he saw. He wasn't a victim of what he was looking at. And he did no wrong nor restlessly accused us, which is what a self-justifying person does. Uh, He saw that we were hiding from our sins. You see, Jesus came with wisdom to understand what the situation really is. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And then he goes on and he says he will judge the poor and he will decide with equity for the weak. But he also strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And then he says there will come a time, or in verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Where's the earth headed? This is where it's headed. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of Christ as God's Lord. That's a promise. And Christ will see to it that it's happened. He announced it before he left our planet. All authority is given to me. That's it. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As you say, the promises get better as they go on, even as history deteriorates. The son of David is, of course, Jesus Christ. So when he's born... Uh, there is great joy uh, what fulfills one of the prophecies those who sit in darkness have seen a great light that's great isn't it nothing small about Christ's coming when Jesus is born there is great joy uh, he can't get many people to see the fun so he comes to some shepherds and shows them <laughs> opens up heaven a little bit to say and sees the heavens all, all breaking out in praise you know God's got to get a heavenly choir and some shepherds to do the rejoicing because the rest of them are too worried about the economy <laughs> or their health or something or other else uh, but nonetheless he gets some people to rejoice and then they go the shepherds go and they see this Christ that is born All things, the things God will do to save our broken world and damaged lives are now going to happen. And I love this passage. We could also almost make it just a study this morning of Luke 1.67. It was interesting. There was a time in my ministry that I just felt I was really dead in the water and I felt very much like Zachariah. A good man, you know, people wouldn't go around picking fault with me, saying, oh, Grant's a licentious man, or he's this or that or the other. You know, I was righteous in the eyes of the world or whatever. But I just knew that there was no life in me. And I felt very much like Zachariah. Uh, He was a righteous man, but when God says, your son's going to be born and you're going to see the Messiah, uh, he he said, how can it happen? God says, because you said that, you'll be dumb all the time of your wife's pregnancy. (laughs) That's shutting you up, isn't it? And giving you nine months to have an object lesson in God-keeping promises, isn't it? It doesn't come easy, does it? To get off our horses and to start believing God's promises. And Zechariah's a case in point. But boy, does he have the thing sorted out when he gets his voice back again and when the child is born... And so Luke 1.67, a wonderful passage of scripture. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't know these things just by doing Bible studies. You know these things because the Holy Spirit opens your heart to Christ who's reigning. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Not he will, he's visited and redeemed his people. 
we call this proleptic, don't we? He's announcing it now. He's stating it as good as done because the child is going to be born. It's not even born yet. He is redeemed. Uh, no, he hasn't been born because Jesus is younger than John the Baptist. That's right, isn't it? He has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets that we should be saved from our enemies to show the mercy promised to the fathers, to remember his holy covenant that he swore to Abraham, delivered us from the hand of our enemies as he, under David, uh, so that we might walk before him without fear in holiness and righteousness, that the, the king will also be a priest that brings us to God. And then he talks about his own son, but he's full of Christ. Not my wife's had a baby. He's full of Christ because the Christ has actually come. That's what brings us to life, isn't it? To get our eyes off ourselves and what's possible humanly to what God is doing through Christ. Someone has come who can deal with the world and with us, given our capacity for deceit and distrust. He'll be greater than David, his Lord, in fact, as we've already seen in Psalm 110, quoted by Jesus. He will sit beside God until all opposition is come. And yet this king also, as other prophecies like Zechariah 4 say, he'll come riding on an ass, humble and meekly, and yet he will accomplish all of God's purpose. So, by nature of the case, everyone, 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 that is your neighbour, your family, that perhaps have turned to another direction instead of Christ, every, whoever it is we've got on our hearts at the moment, or we've got in our imagination about out in the world there, everyone needs to decide if Jesus is this Christ. This is public information, uh, and the welfare of the world depends on it. Uh, like Peter, for example, uh, who do people say that I am? Well, some say this and some that. But Peter, who do you think that I am? He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Or the Jewish leaders. Uh, Pilate, uh, sorry, uh, Caiaphas asks Jesus, um, uh, tell us, who are you? Are you the Christ? And he said, you have said so, which is a kind of a, um, a, a yes but not in the way that you mean it, <laughs> answer. That's according to some studies that are done on that little passage. Um, yes, but not in the way you mean it. Uh, but, he's, but then he, he makes it clear that he means yes, but when he comes, he says, you'll see the Son of Man sitting in the clouds, coming in the clouds of heaven in great glory, which is a, um, a fulfilment of Daniel 7. Uh, so he clearly identifies himself as the Messiah. Pilate, sorry, I beg your pardon, uh, Caiaphas and Israel needs to know, the Jewish leaders need to know that Jesus, they need to confess it. Treasuring God's promises, bring us back to our subject now, treasuring God's promises begins with believing that Jesus is the king. So everyone needs to come under his reign. See, it's not an accident that Jesus announces the kingdom of God is at hand. And you say, how near is at hand? Well, it's near enough to be dangerous. <laughs> that's a clear answer, isn't it? Uh, it's a, that's a practical answer, I mean. Uh, it's clear enough to be dangerous. In other words, if you don't accept it, you're in big problems. So the kingdom of God is near. Or the, in other places, he says, when he's cast out demons, he says, the kingdom of God has come upon you like a prancing lion. <laughs> gotcha. 
There's nothing, nothing, uh, what do you call it, indefinite about it, if I can put it that way. His kingdom is near. Jesus has come and he's taking charge. And boy, do the devils know it. There's just dozens of them around. I mean, it only takes one demon to make a person mad. So why is a person full of them? Well, because, you know, they, Satan's just gone mad from the frenzy, uh, wanting to get to Jesus to somehow or other dismantle him uh, because he knows the problems are really there. Um, his kingdom is near. Jesus is taking charge. No one can guarantee anything unless they can make things happen. That's why I don't like politicians ever using the word guarantee or the new one they use now is to ensure we're going to have this. Why you promise these things, mate? You're going to rue the day. You're going to be crucified later on. But people, as they say in politics, have got short memories and so they go on doing it. But it's useless, isn't it? We'll say we're going to do our utmost to try and make this happen. That would be honest, wouldn't it? But to guarantee something is something only God can do. Uh, God making promises, however, can stir up resentment, perhaps because we know we can't do it. And it certainly stirs up resentment with the Jews. And when Peter speaks at Pentecost, he accuses the Jews of killing their anointed leader. And Pilate, he mightn't have been a good judge, but he was certainly a good psychologist. He knew exactly why he had a court case on his hands. He knew it was because of jealousy. They couldn't pull in the crowds like Jesus could. And so they had to remove him. They knew couldn't take people to God like Jesus could. And they were jealous. So he accuses the Jews of killing their anointed leader, but God's raised him up and they need his forgiveness earnestly. I reckon this is one of, one of the most, if you want a, an evidence that God is kind, just go to the day of Pentecost. I mean, there's a test, okay? Is Jesus the Messiah? It's two possible answers, yes or no. So, first answer, no. And they kill him. Okay, so God raises him up again and God comes again. Okay, there's a test and there's two possible answers. Uh, yes or no? Two answers and two chances. I mean, that's about a zero possibility for failing, isn't it? It's just almost laughable that God would be so kind as to offer another opportunity after they killed their Messiah. And they give them evidence in loads that he was the Messiah. It wasn't confusion, might have been historical confusion, but the evidence was there. So they, uh, they need his forgiveness urgently. His mercy must expose us. You've been exposed? Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? It's not nice being embarrassed. It's not nice failing. But boy, do we need it. Otherwise, we're full of ourselves and not full of God's promises. Is that right? So we need God's exposure so that he might be able to bless us. This is the kingdom we are transferred into. Lovely verse, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the son of his love. In other words, all God's loving is poured out through Jesus. And Jesus is the one who knows the love of God and is implementing the love of God. You don't get a better, better love story than that. And you and I have been put right into the middle of the story, transferred into the reign, 
Christ is up and running, doing his job, bringing peace to the nations, and he's made you part of the equation. Wonderful, isn't it? Transferred into the kingdom of the son of his love, or if you like, of his loving, loving of his son, but loving of us as well. Jesus is not only the son God has promised, he is the one who says yes to everything. We looked at Paul a little earlier and what confidence he had in God's great promises. But here's another wonderful example, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. He's got a bit of argy-bargy going on with the Corinthian congregation, as you probably realise. They're really prickly letters, aren't they? 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians and he's, he's got to walk a very narrow line between telling them they're, they're dead wrong but he wants them to be so much to be right and so he's having to choose his words almost all the way through. So here's this particular congregation um, and uh, they're arguing over whether he really wants to come and see them or not and he has to persuade them that when he says yes he means yes. I mean, you know, we, uh, unbelief and doubt about anybody keeping a promise is so endemic, we have trouble believing anybody. You know, we've got, you've got to, I just find it amazing. I had to sign a letter, I think, from a medical professional the other day to say that it was okay for them to send me a letter uh, to advise me about appointments. And I thought, how many approvals do we need to give them so that they don't get into trouble? Do you know I mean? You've got to get approval for everything, don't you? Signing documents about almost the smallest little thing distrust is so endemic across our society. Isn't that right? Um, and uh, so it was, uh, it was uh, there, of course, in Corinth, and they were d- doubting that Paul would really come or that he really wanted to. And so here how's he put, how he puts it. Uh, as surely, verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, For the Son of God, and here's his reason for having some definiteness about his yes. It's not coming from Paul. It's coming from the God he trusts, from the Christ he trusts. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed amongst you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, This is why it is through him that we utter to you our Amen, to God for his glory. It is God who establishes, guarantees, ensures. There's the guarantor. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has put his seal upon us and given his spirit as a guarantee. It's all definite, isn't it? But where does it come from? God says, yes. And what's his yes? Jesus. Well, that's good, isn't it? Does God love me? One word answer. Jesus. Am I going to be okay? One word answer. Jesus. You see, it's, it's there, isn't it? It makes things definite. We are slow to believe and reticent to trust, but not Jesus he comes and he says, what's God promised? This, this, all right, done. What's God promised? This, this, that, done. Yes, to all of God's promises. Think about what that means. We have trouble believing some of God's promises, not Jesus. All going to happen. 
because he's going to implement them. He wants, including being priest, he wants God's will to be done on earth as it's done in heaven. No wonder he teaches us to pray the same prayer, isn't it? Your will be done. And he prays it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He wants the covenant to be fulfilled. He wants God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. He makes sure these promises come true for all who believe in him. His yes, that is his yes that then enables us to say Amen. To say what Mary says to the angel. She says, How can this be? I don't I'm not in a, a married relationship. I don't have babies. That's a fair question. Not like Zachariah's question. It's a fair question. It's a medical question, really. <laughs> and uh, she said, he says, well, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Therefore, that thing to be born of you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And she says, let it be so to me, according to your word. That's her amen. Now, that could be the story of your life. Let it be so to me, according to your word. It's a good way to live, isn't it? Because he's made the promises, not us. So we simply say the Amen. He, so Christ wants God's will to be done and Christ has now taught us to say, your will be done. Let it be so to me according to what you promise. Um, Every promise God makes in the Old Testament is based on what Jesus will do and in the New Testament all God's promises are based on what he has done and of course on what he will do. Apart from him, all the promises would be empty words. Notice how confident Paul is when he says this, as we pointed out, because God's promises are being fulfilled in Christ, he can be definite in making promises to other people. He knows that God's going to take him there. How he knows that, we don't know, but he just knows that it really is how it is. So Jesus has taken account of our preferences to trust ourselves. Oh, how grateful we should be for this. He hasn't just given promises and said, right, muscle up, look what I've done for you. Now come on, get on board. Not like that at all. Um, uh, He's taken into account our preferences to trust ourselves. That's awful, isn't it? You can do anything well for a fortnight and you start to trust it. Is that right? Sometimes not even a fortnight. And the Lord says, no, it says, I want you to be trusting in me. Uh, Like Psalm 119 says, it's been good for me that I've been afflicted because before I was afflicted, I went astray. We need our problems. Is that true? We need our failures. Hesitate to say that. But Peter needed his failure. That's how it is, isn't it? Uh, He's taken into account our preferences to trust ourselves, our ungratefulness and resentment, and he comes to us raised from the dead to offer us new life. We may be comforted by promises we read in the Bible, but if we imagine these promises will be fulfilled because we're nice people or because we feel good when we read them, we're deceived. It needs to be a Jesus that fulfills them, isn't it? I like, uh, I think it's um, C.S. Lewis's point that Jesus is the person who prays the prayers of the Psalms. 
and that helped C.S. Lewis to get through some of the Psalms that he found rather unpalatable until he realised that Jesus was the one who praised the Psalms. And when he praised that the little children's heads would be dashed against the rocks, and that was his problem in particular, um, you know, a terrible psalm in one sense, he says Jesus could pray that because it was going to be his head that would be dashed against the rocks. He believed in the judgments of God and endured them. You need a Jesus to make sense of the Bible. True? That's what C.S. Lewis, I think, was saying, and certainly about the Psalms. Uh, So now, um, we need what Christ has done to receive what is promised. Now, Peter at Pentecost, come to that. And what is in the problem? Just picking up the the way from the rest of it, and we won't perhaps get through all of it. No, we can need to come to a fairly quick end. But um, but Peter says the promise has been fulfilled. That's what he's about, isn't it? This promise of a new life addressed to as many as the Lord. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. There it is. It is, it's being addressed to us because the Lord has called us as he was calling people on that day. Uh, We can receive these promises. For example, we can read Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Do you believe that? Well, if your desires have been formed by God's word, yes, let it be so to me, according to your word, you see. And then Jesus says a very similar thing uh, in um, John 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. So you see that? If you abide in me, so we're content because we're in Christ. We're not fretfully trying to get to establish ourselves. We're abiding in him. And his words abide in us. In other words, we've got the same ideas in his, our minds as he's got in his mind. You'd ask for whatever you wish. God gives us holy desires. And God loves not just to do what he wants, but he wants to do what you want that he wants. Isn't that amazing? He wants to hear what you want when you want what he wants. That's his idea of heaven. <laughs> uh, everything... Uh, flowing within the plan of God. I'm going to leave it there because you can read the rest and I think some of the things have been covered in one sense already. Let's just give a... Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly and Holy Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to your own promise way back in the garden that you would give us a child of humanity's own making a child born of Mary, who would be also your son, both man and God, but who would leave nothing undone of all that you've promised. And now, Father, we are the inheritors of this amazing promise. Grant that we shall not try to establish our own kingdom, but rather live in yours, that you have established through Christ our Lord, and that we, with the meekness and gentleness of Christ, himself may live the rest of our life 
happily as a fulfilling of all the rich promises that you make to us in his name we ask. Amen.